0: Good morning. Our sermon text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 20. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The grass withers, the flower fades.
1: Let's pray together. as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall your word be, Lord, Lord, that goes forth from your mouth, it shall not return to you empty. It shall accomplish what you purpose, and it will succeed in the thing for which you sent it. And we believe that this morning because the Lord Jesus is, and we've experienced it, He is that grain of wheat that died and went into the ground and still, even in this room this morning, is bearing much fruit. And he is still today your powerful word that makes this earth bear and sprout the new creation. And so our expectations are high, and we look for your blessing and your power, and we pray that today would be Uh, the day of salvation for many under your grace. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Friends, in the Reformation and the aftermath of the Reformation, the Reformers, uh, one of the the great questions that they were considering together uh, for a long time is how you identify the true church. And they uh, came to an agreement Uh, that there were really three distinguishing marks of the true church. Mark number one, and I know you know this, uh, but it's good to review these things as we turn to Matthew 18. Mark number one was the faithful uh, preaching of the gospel. Mark number two was the right administration of the sacraments. And mark number three, perhaps a little surprising, was the faithful practice of church discipline. And if you think about it, those uh, three marks are really just a single mark. And what that single mark is, I think, is a jealousy, a holy jealousy for the purity of the gospel. Uh, That the church is defined in all of its facets by the true church is defined in all of its facets, in all of its aspects by this holy uh, jealousy, this God-given jealousy for the purity of the gospel. When we love the gospel, we love everything that proclaims the gospel, everything that portrays the gospel, the sacraments, everything that gives us the gospel, everything that protects the gospel. Yes, even church discipline. I'm very thankful to be part of a denomination that values all three of those marks of the true church, and I am even more grateful to serve alongside elders, and you should thank God that the Lord Jesus has given you elders who love a gospel-centered practice of church discipline. It is a beautiful thing, and it is a gospel-displaying gift to the people of Christ and Emmanuel. So as we uh, finish this morning, Lord willing, our study of verses uh, 10 through 20 in Matthew 18, my desire is that we're going to love uh, church discipline. We're going we're to rejoice in it. We're going to see it as the gift uh, to the, His church of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be drawn by its beauty. And yes, we're even going to hear the music of the gospel in it And we're going to be thankful that Jesus has provided it for us so that we can learn how even to dance with Him and with one another. Yes, a Presbyterian said we're going to dance. Yeah. Uh, How to dance with one another and our Lord to its rhythms. Uh, Last Sunday night I was sharing with the the adults uh, this illustration that I uh, found in, in Charles Spurgeon and then adapted and uh, it's this. Uh, Spurgeon talks about how when you hold a, a seashell up to your ear, uh, it tells you about its origin. You hear the ocean when you hold uh, the seashell up to its ear. And I was thinking about this illustration. I walked in the church office right before, I, uh, right before I came in the sanctuary, and Bethany Wallach was there. And uh, she was raiding the chocolate bowl. And uh, there, I noticed a seashell... Uh, a seashell on the desk, and I thought, oh, here's an opportunity to prepare Bethany for the sermon. I said, Bethany, you know, when you hold that shell up to your ear, do you know what you hear? And I wanted Bethany, of course, to say, the ocean, Pastor Mike. And she said, well, actually, my kindergarten science teacher told me that you're hearing your blood vessels. (laughs) And she's right, okay? She's right. But my, my point is this, uh, that church discipline is supposed to be like a seashell, that when you hold it up to your ear and you get close, what you hear is the music of the gospel. Because discipline te- should tell us, uh, the right understanding of church discipline should tell us the story of its origin that it's about the gospel. And so, this morning, uh, with apologies uh, to my dear uh, friend, Bethany Wallach, we're going to talk about that seashell. And we're going to look at church discipline in uh, three parts. We're going to think about the necessity and resources for church discipline, the why and the how, if you will, and then the narrative of it. We're going to look at the overview, put all the pieces of the story together that the Lord Jesus gives us in verses 15 through 20, and then we'll conclude with some observations about the nature of church discipline. So first, this morning, let's think about the necessity and resources for church discipline. And this is an important thing to think about because this really sets the context for church discipline, and that context ultimately is our, our common biography that we share inside the church. You know, whatever, uh, th- whatever things we might identify as factors that separate us or that distinguish us from one another, in the end... All those things, whether they're age or ethnicity or geography or whether we like sweet or unsweetened tea or education or our profession, uh, whatever it is, those things, as large as they may loom uh, before our imaginations, in the end, they're very peripheral and they're very superficial in comparison to what unites us. And what unites us is that we share every Christian, every Christian shares exactly the same biography. And we need to remember that. That's what Jesus has been telling us in verses 12 through 13. That's what he has been trying to press home for his disciples. He's saying, listen, don't despise when your brother falls into sin or sins against you. Don't you dare despise him. Because you have exactly the same biography. When he tells us the story about the shepherd in verses 12 and 13, who seeks, who leaves uh, to seek the, the strayed sheep, who leaves everything in order to find that sheep and then and then to rescue that sheep and to rejoice over that sheep. Jesus is telling us his own autobiography, isn't he? He's that shepherd. But in the very same illustration, he is telling us uh, our biography because we're that sheep, every single one of us. So he, this, uh, Jesus relates to every single Christian as that shepherd relates to the sheep. He, for every believer in Christ, is the pursuer, the, the finder, the rescuer. And every single Christian relates to Jesus as that sheep relates to the shepherd in the illustration. We are all those who know what it means to be pursued, what it means to be lost, and what it means to be found, what it means to be pursued, what it means to be laid hold of by one who is stronger than us. What it means to be laid hold of by one with a grip that is tender and strong, and what it means to be rejoiced over. That is our common biography. That is the context for church discipline. Friends, remember where, let's step out of the illustration now. And, and let's think about where God tells us, let's look a little more widely in Scripture and think about where God tells us our biography begins. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 3. And right now, I, I'm, I'm addressing my Christian brothers and sisters, but uh, our non-Christian friends, I want to make sure that you understand that what I'm walking through, I'm just walking through the story of the gospel And so the same salvation that we are standing in this morning as Christians is available to you this morning equally on exactly the same terms as it was given to us. And so I don't want you thinking that this is not about you. I want you to listen uh, to the story of God's grace in the lives of Christians. And I have been praying that you would be captured by the grace of God as you look at these things. So look at Romans 3. Of verses 10 through 12. This is how every single one, my brothers and sisters, this is how every single one of our biographies began. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one No one understands. No one seeks for God. It doesn't matter how religious you think you are. You can be a very religious person. You can have spent your whole life, Paul is reminding us here, just as his uh, Jewish uh, countrymen did. You can spend your whole life engaged in religious activities calling on the name of God and not be seeking God, not be seeking or knowing the true and living God. And Paul goes on to say, all have turned aside, whether you're religious or irreligious, right? Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, there's not a single biography in this room In which anyone has been righteous. Anyone has understood the glory of God. Anyone has sought for God. There's not a single biography in this room that began with somebody not turning aside from God, not pursuing vanity. Every single biography of every single person in this room begins this way. There was not a single person in this room who began their life doing good that brought glory to God. Did you see that picture this week from the Cassini spacecraft? I love the Cassini spacecraft. That picture that it took from behind Saturn looking back at Earth, it was 440,000 miles from Saturn when it took the picture and Earth was this little, 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 little pixel in the lower right-hand corner. And we think That the God who made all of that, and that's nothing, owes us. And so Paul needs to clear our vision and remind us that every biography of every person in this room, every Christian in this room, your biography began this way. All of us were under the just wrath of God because of our sin. And we were powerless. We were all equally powerless to rescue ourselves. We were all equally under the just and holy wrath of God. No single one of us was more under that wrath and more liable to his judgment than anyone else. No one of us was any less obligated to God. And no one of us, when you compare ourselves to the infinite holiness of God, none of us was closer to him than the other. And so, Paul goes on, verse 22, Romans 3, For there is no distinction. There's no distinction among people. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what he told us in verses 10 through 12. And now he's clarified that the definition of sin is a repudiation of the glory of God, that God is not the greatest treasure, that God is not the greatest object of our joy. That's what sin is. And so how is anyone ever going to be saved? Look at verse 24, and are justified, what? Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, what is impossible, what was impossible for us, God broke through and creating the, the possibility of salvation for sinners, but it had to be achieved by God. And it was accomplished by God at his initiative, by his accomplishment. He put forward his own son as a propitiation for his own wrath. His own son for his own wrath against our sin. God did that. And he answered our sin and his wrath fully in the death of his son. Friends, that's true for every single Christian in this room. There's only one way to be reconciled to God. Whatever separates us, age, ethnicity, educational background, our work, our money, our health, whatever it is, all those things are insignificant in comparison to the gravity of that shared biography. And you notice that all that work of God is is held out to sinners as a gift to be received by faith. God accomplishes it And the only condition to be able to benefit from it is that we must believe that gift and receive it as a gift and not as our reward and not as our achievement. And this is true for every single person who is a believer in this room and it is the only way that anyone ever becomes a believer. And so for every Christian That work of Christ was applied to our lives as a gift, as God's Holy Spirit caused us, not because we were good, but because he has caused us to be born again. And we were given the gift of faith. And when we were given the gift of faith, we were given the gift of repentance, and we were enabled to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our conversion, do you know what happened? We, as Paul says, we were justified, and we were adopted in the moment of our conversion. We were justified by God. You know what that means? That means in the moment of our conversion, there were two massive gifts that were given to us in our justification the instant of our conversion one we all all of us all of us who are Christians received from God on the basis of Christ's work an equal pardon for all of our sins past present and future, known and unknown, comprehended and uncomprehended. For every single Christian at the moment of your conversion, whether or not you understood it, and of course you didn't understand it fully, How could you, how could anyone appreciate the magnitude of what God has done? But in the moment of your conversion, when you believed, you turned from your sins and you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what was true. Jesus had set your feet in the widest of all places so that you enjoyed a liberty before God, having been freed from all of your sins, past, present, and future. But that's not all. Because God also, in the moment of your conversion, gave to you a righteousness, reckoned you equally righteous in his sight. All of you. What happened in the moment of your conversion, my brothers and sisters, is that God reckoned the righteousness of Jesus Christ to your account. He imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ to you at the moment of your conversion so that at the instant you were converted, when your understanding of the gospel was just, it was subatomic, you were as righteous in the sight of God as you will be on the last day of your 10 billionth year in the new heavens and new earth. And God did that. I read yesterday when, in Hebrews 11 when the writer is talking about Abel, talking about how Abel by, you know, by faith, Abel by his sacrifice obtained uh, you know, God's approval. He was, uh, he was commended as righteous. God commending him. And that is true for you. Uh, brothers and sisters, because of Christ's sacrifice. It is God who commends you as righteous on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. That's true for every Christian. And my non-Christian friends, that can be just as true of you today by the same grace that saved us. There is no reason In God or in the work of Christ, there is no deficiency. There's no reason for hesitation on the part of uh, of your heart because there is none on the part of God's. There is no deficiency in the work of Christ that will not be able to answer for whatever your need is before God. And so there's no reason for you not to come. Friends, that was true for you and I in the moment of our conversions. And then something even else. In the moment of our conversion, we were all equally adopted as God's children in the instant of our conversion. This is our biography. This is our common biography. We were made equal, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. There are no stepchildren in the family of God. We were equally entitled to know God as our Father, to have Him as our Father, equally invested in the the eternal inheritance that He provided for His children. Friends, at the moment of our conversion, and one day we are going to be equally glorified. We're going to be equally conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's where our biography is going. From where it started, but you know, in in between... Our equal justification, where we all enjoy, all Christians enjoy an equal pardon and an equal righteous standing before God, and an equal adoption as God's children, and our future glorification, where we will all enjoy an equal conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. This space in between is also part of our biography, and this is about sanctification. And what's interesting about sanctification is because it is a work of God's free grace as opposed to the act of God's free grace, it is uneven uh, within an individual Christian life and it is uneven between Christians. We are not all sanctified at the same pace and even within our own life. We're like, we're like those great redwoods in California that I love where, where the rings and the tree, even in our own lives, right? Right? And you know this, right, brothers and sisters? In our own lives... There are growth periods where the rings seem really wide, and then there are other seasons where they're really tight together because we don't grow at the same pace within the Christian life, and we don't grow for all kinds of reasons at the same pace as our brothers and sisters. And so it's because of that reality of sanctification in our biography that we must never let our justification, our equal justification, our equal adoption, our equal pardon, the equal righteous standing that we have before God. And and the hope of our future equal glorification, we must never let those realities breed in us a passivity or presumption about our present sanctification. Because what the gospel teaches us is, and what Jesus is very soberly and honestly emphasizing in Matthew 18, is that our sanctification is a community project. It involves the church. And that's what church discipline is about. So let's think, friends, turn with me back to Matthew 18, and let's think now about the whole story that Jesus tells us in Matthew 18. Let's put the pieces together in verses 15 through 20. one day, we're all going to obtain, Paul tells us, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us that in 2 Thessalonians 2. But right now, we're works in progress, aren't we? We need one another. We need the community. And every step of the process that Jesus describes here and prescribes here in verses 15 through 20 is a is a step that bears the image of the cross, right? The, the necessity of the cross that Jesus had to die for our sins and the desirability of the cross to him that he wanted to die for the sins of his people. We every one of these steps in verses 15 through 17 just echoes those two realities of the cross by which Jesus is building his church. So let's, let's look at verse 15 again, setting it in context. Right Where we begin is when our brother sins against us. And Jesus tells us in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Why? Why do I go to my brother when he has sinned against me? That's a little counterintuitive. I go to him because I know and I remember that my brother's sin is so serious that no one less than the incarnate Son of God himself could answer for his sin. And that incarnate Son of God had to do nothing less than give not only his life, but also his death as a substitution for my brother's sins. I go to my brother to remind him that Jesus had to die for his sins. And I go to remind my brother the wonder that Jesus wanted to do that for him. And so what that means is that when I approach my brother, and this sets the tone for everything else that's going to happen, When I go to my brother, I am going as a rescued rescuer. I am going with an urgency, and I am going with a humility. And those are produced. The urgency, right, the urgency comes from my recognition of the gravity of sin, And the humility comes because I myself have been rescued from my sin. And I remember the urgency of that. I remember that I could not rescue myself. And so I go to my brother in that way. I, I come to him not to litigate with him. I come to my brother to advocate for him with the music of the gospel and to appeal to our common shared biography. I do not come to my brother as a prosecutor. Well, what happens if he doesn't listen? That's verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay? So why do I persist if my brother refuses to listen to me? And why do I involve others if my brother doesn't uh, doesn't listen to me? Am I doing that to gang up on him? Am I doing that uh, to bully him into submission? To show him that I have more votes than him? No. I'm doing it out of humility, and I'm doing it out of a sense of gravity. Let me explain what I mean by humility. The others are a safeguard for me and for him. Friends, if if I am so sinful that Jesus Christ had to die for my sins, then guess what? I might be wrong. I might be wrong in my evaluation of my brother's conduct. And if Jesus Christ had to die for my brother's sins, guess what? he or she, if it's a sister, might be wrong about their own conduct. And so expanding the witness of other brothers and sisters is going to be helpful and a safeguard for both myself and for my brother. It is a safeguard to ensure. It's not a license to gossip, friends. It is not a license to gossip. It is not a license uh, to go with an air of moral superiority. Remember, you go as a rescued rescuer. You go to, not to litigate with your brother, but to advocate for your brother on the basis of the love and work of Christ. And so when you bring others, you are humbling yourself, but you're also going because of the gravity you are not going to let your brothers know or uh, rebuff, uh, diminish your sense of the gravity, both of his sin or uh, both of his sin and of the love of Christ. And so you're abiding in the gospel. See, what this is all about is are you abiding in the gospel? And if you are abiding in the gospel and the mercies of God in Jesus Christ are continuing to transform you and you, by those mercies, are daily presenting your whole life as a living sacrifice to God, guess what? You are going to be continually and more and more deeply transformed as your mind is renewed you're not going to as the gospel sinks in you're going to be freed increasingly from the need to be vindicated and so you're going to be in a position to serve your brother and you're going to be in a position to even to weather his disapproval and perhaps even his anger because you know that the reality of his sin is more serious than his anger. And we go to our brother as a group because we understand that Jesus has made us keepers of one another, that Jesus, as I said last week, Jesus, we've experienced this. This is our common biography, right? Our shared biography. The thing that makes us equal is that we, by our own sin, had been in the ditch by the side of the road, as it were, in the universe. We had thrown ourselves into that ditch by our own disobedience to God, and Jesus, who had no reason in us except our need, did not pass by. He Was the ultimate Good Samaritan to us who came and stopped what he was doing, as it were, and bound up our wounds and carried us home and out of his own fortune, as it were, spent whatever was needed to rescue us. And as we remember that, we remember that he wants us now to be that same kind of Good Samaritan to our brother or sister. He has made us our brother's keeper. Eve's greatest son isn't like Eve's firstborn son. Jesus isn't like Cain. If we're abiding in the vine, friends, we're going to remember, we're going to remember that Jesus gave himself, shed his own blood for our welfare, unlike Cain. Who shed his brother's blood for his welfare. We go toward our brother because we have been first kept by Jesus Christ. What if he refuses to listen to us then? Well, that's verse 17. And we go to the church why don't we walk away at this point? I mean, we've gone. to think about this. We've gone to our brother. We've made an appeal to him. He's sinned against us. We've made an appeal to him. We've gone out of our shared biography. We've advocated with him. We're not litigating against him. We're appealing to him uh, to repent and turn to the gospel again, and he's refused us. Then we go with two more brothers or sisters, and he still refuses us and rebuffs us. Why don't we wipe our hands clean at this point and say, that's a waste of time? You know why not, friends? Because you were not a waste of Jesus' time. You were not a waste of Jesus' time. You were not a waste of his tears. You were not a waste of his sweat. You were not a waste of his cries. In Jesus' evaluation, you were not a waste of any of those things. You and I, amazing wonder, right? We were not a waste of the Son of God's time. We were not a waste of his sweat. We were not a waste of his tears, not a single one. We were not a waste of his groaning. We were not a waste of his blood. That's his evaluation. So we cannot consign our brother or sister to a category where we say, not worth the time. We come to the church, and in our context, our Presbyterian context, that that means coming to the elders who have uh, under God a responsibility, a frontline responsibility in this church for this stage of the discipline. And we come to the church, again, not as prosecutors, but because we are rightly jealous for the glory of Jesus Christ. We're rightly jealous for everything that his cross tells us about the urgency of being reconciled to God, that nothing less nothing less valuable, nothing less complete than the self-substitution of the incarnate Son of God was necessary in order to redeem sinners from their sin. That's how serious sin is. And we come to him because we are rightly jealous also that our brother or sister would know the great love of Christ, and we bring it to the church friends, because those things are non-negotiable. They are constitutional. They define us as Christians. They are the heart of what it means to be a Christian. That is the common biography that binds us together, and it is our desire to assemble a gospel choir, as it were, that sings the music of the gospel to our brother, so that he hears with one voice. See, these escalations are designed uh, not to uh, not to humiliate our brother, but to emancipate him. As more and more people speak the same with the same voice and sing the same song, so what happens if our brother refuses even then the church's voice? Well, there is a point. There is a point, and Jesus makes it very clear, that patience is not limitless. There is a boundary, and that boundary is marked ultimately by our brother. And we are recognizing the boundary, if you will, in the most severe manifestation of discipline when we obey Jesus' command to regard our our brother as a Gentile or a tax collector, in other words, as a non-Christian. That point is reached when our brother has uh, resolutely identified himself as a non-Christian by his conduct and refusal to repent because what is it that defines a Christian? It is the recognition that the cross was necessary for his sin and that the cross was desirable to Jesus for his sin. But if our brother persistently, in the face of multiple opportunities, resolutely refuses to bend to those truths, then what he is saying, in effect, when we become uh, persuaded that, uh, that he, is, he is declaring, and is not going to move off of this, he is declaring that the cross is unnecessary, And that the cross is undesirable, well then at that point we need to recognize that He has repudiated our common biography. And I pray that it will never reach that point. But sometimes it does. But even then, the point of that judgment is redemptive. It is to help someone see. It's not to punish. It's to help someone see where they are. So, friends, let's think now about three, in closing, let's think about three observations that uh, are to guide the nature of our practice of church discipline. And the first one is this. I want you to notice the staggering promise that Jesus makes that he will be personally present as we uh, carry out church discipline. Verse 20, you know, we know this promise. It's very familiar to us. It's very precious. But most of us uh, think about it out of context. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. We, We refer to that promise all the time but its context is, is all the more remarkable, right? Its context is in is church discipline. And what Jesus is saying, is absolutely staggering. The only other promise like this that he makes in all the Gospel of Matthew is the very last verse in the Gospel of Matthew at the end of the Great Commission when he promises to be with his people even to the end of the age as the church is witnessing to his lordship externally. But here, internally, witnessing to his lordship, his kingship over the church, receives exactly the same promise of his presence. It's staggering, and it underscores how urgent Jesus regards the practice of church discipline and why we can't shirk it and why we can't walk away from it. It is absolutely amazing. I mean, what he calls us to do in these verses, it... It makes me quake in my boots when I think about it. And I think, how am I gonna have patience for these things? How where is the love gonna come from? Where is the courage to have difficult conversations and to to bear even the wrath of a brother or sister? Where is that gonna come from? Because when I look in my own heart, it ain't there. He is calling us to do what is impossible for us, friends. And yet he is promising this with this promise in verse 20 that he'll provide. He'll provide. He will not leave us to ourselves. The most difficult things he calls us to here, he will not leave us to ourselves and he will not leave our brother or sister to him or herself. He'll be there. And that means also that he is going to personally preside. You see, the implication of verse 20 means that we're not conducting discipline by hearsay. Jesus is promising that in every one of these steps, when he says, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be in your midst, where two or more are gathered in my name. And that's every step of this process, right? Right? He's saying, that's actually going to be me. I'm going to be working through your conversations. I'm going to be working through your Presbyterian book of church order. I'm going to be working through your praying. I'm going to be working through your elders' meetings. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be the persuader. I'm going to be the pursuer. I am not delegating this entirely to you. I am going to be there. That's an amazing promise. And it gives us great hope as we move forward. But it underscores the urgency of church discipline. And it means that we need to recognize that church discipline, as Jesus has outlined it in chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, has to be marked secondly by a passion for Jesus' lordship in his church. And what do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus makes it very clear in verses 18 through 19 especially that he is the ultimate standard in church discipline. We practice church discipline because the church is not a democracy. The church is not a republic. Jesus doesn't rule in the midst of his church by the consent of the governed. He is a monarch. And that means that his will is what governs our relationships with each other. His will is what sets the boundaries. His will is what establishes the conditions. What that means, friends, is that Jesus is ultimate. Our community is not. The highest value in the church is not our community. If we come here just to be with one another and not to gather by the, or under the lordship of Christ, guess what? We will destroy the community we say we love. Because if Jesus had to die for our sins, then that means, friends, that every single one of us carries around in our hearts the seeds for this community's destruction. So unless we gather under a standard that is higher than our horizontal relationships we will be unprotected, and it will only be as we conform and together look not at one another, but to Jesus's ultimacy and the ultimacy of his will. That That's the only way that the community can be preserved or flourish. The first thing has to be first in order for the second thing to be safe. And you notice how Jesus emphasizes this in verse 18. And again, if you look in the footnotes of your Bible, it's probably the case that they'll get this right. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, and the ESV says, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. But in the ESV, for example, there's a a helpful footnote that says, what this literally says is this. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, speaking to the church, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. We saw the same thing in chapter 16 when Jesus is speaking to Peter. And what in the world does that mean? Well, what it means is that Jesus is saying that the church built by His cross is meant... As it carries out the responsibilities it he entrusts to us is to carry out his will. So we we conform, we seek to conform our judgments and our decisions to the things that He has revealed. So we don't bind things that He has loosed and we don't loose things that He has bound. This does not mean that whatever we bind, Jesus binds, and whatever we loose, Jesus looses, as though earth were in charge of heaven. That's not the case. And that's very important to see that Jesus, that exercising discipline involves both of these things. Recognizing Jesus' kingship means that we loose the things that Jesus has declared loose and that we bind the things that Jesus has bound, because it's his will that must be ultimate in the church. You know what it means? For the church, in Jesus' name, to bind things, it means that there is no sin That is not serious enough to be repented of. There is no sin not serious enough to be overlooked. And you know what it means for the church to loose what Jesus has loosed? It means that there is no sin or sins or a lifetime of sinning that is more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ shed. And what it means to carry out the will of this king is that we are uncompromising with respect to the standards that he has announced and declares for holiness. And we are equally uncompromising in our application of the standards of mercy and grace that he has announced and proclaimed to us and that we have benefited from. And so that leads us to the third observation about church discipline, and that's this, that it should be marked by a passion for restoration. This is what it means to tell the truth about Jesus Christ. He's the king of the church. What we do in the life of our church is supposed to tell the truth about him. He is a holy king. He is the ultimate king. He is the Lord. But that mighty ultimate Lord is also infinitely gracious and merciful to sinners. His name is Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. So what that means, friends is that when we are pursuing church discipline, we are not pursuing the punishment of the offender. I need to say that again. Because every time we get involved in discipline, there is somebody who says, you're being punitive. And that's not true. The practice of church discipline is not about the punishment of the offender, but it is about punishment. It's about the punishment of the offended one. What church discipline is about, friends, is the gospel. And what that means is that we are about taking the wealth of the cross and the work of Christ and and all that Jesus has absorbed in his punishment as the one who was offended by our sins he was the offended one and yet he is the one who pays the price for the offenders and all we are doing in church discipline is taking the wealth of what he has accomplished by standing in our place and absorbing the punishment that we deserved, all the riches of God's grace, all the cleansing, all the promises of pardon, all the emancipation, all the freedom and cleansing of conscience that his punishment accomplished and as, as the holy offended one he, that he absorbed. And we're taking that fortune of what he has received and we are applying it in church discipline to the offenders yet again. Jesus is not calling us to spend our own resources in the practice of church discipline, friends. He's calling us to draw against the fortune of his. And in that way, we will make the music of the gospel clear. We will give to people what they do not deserve just as we received what we, do not, what we did not deserve, which is mercy and grace and could never deserve right? But which was given to us by the punishment of our holy king. And so friends, may God grant that this biography that we share together would echo out and through every channel of our life together. Let's pray. Lord, it's a beautiful story, and yet as amazing as it is to us, it is so easy, we confess, to forget it, to lose track of it, to think that this is somebody else's story. Oh, protect us against that. Protect us against that despair of unbelief, and protect us against the arrogance of unbelief. And grant that we would have our ears tuned and hearts tuned more and more to the music of your gospel in our life together. And we pray in your name. Amen.